1: Welcome to the Jason and Scott show. This episode is being recorded live from the e East trade show in Boston on Wednesday, August 21st, 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And unfortunately, Scott was unable to join us today. So you're getting twice the Jason for half the usual cost. Um, and if that weren't a great enough deal, I'm sweetening the pot uh, by ha- asking a great guest to be on the show today. Uh, so this morning, we're talking to Aki Andrews, who's the Chief Digital Officer at Untucket. Uh, welcome to the show, Lockie.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: I am super excited to have you. Um, for listeners that may not have experienced the life-changing uh, event of owning an Untucket shirt, can you give us the sort of reader's digest on who you guys are?
0: Absolutely. Thank you again for having me and it's super exciting to be here to talk about Untuck It. Uh, Untuck It was started by Chris Roccobono and Aaron Sinandris. They're still actively involved in the business, which is amazing. And they had a simple idea of creating the perfect untucked shirt. Uh, Some of you may not realize it, but the traditional shirt is not meant to be worn untucked and it actually looks a bit sloppy. So they had the great idea to design a shirt that would make men feel and look sharp, even at their most casual.
1: Uh, I, I feel like that was a great insight. Were they in the apparel business? And so this was like a new thing? Or, or did they have that insight as a a user and have to figure out how to get into the apparel business.
0: Totally as a user. uh, They were not in the apparel business. But notice that you know traditional shirts are just designed to have longer tails. So by having the the bright idea to actually design something that didn't exist at the time, uh, they took it upon themselves to design that shirt and it took them several years to perfect it. But now we're in a movement where untucked shirts are a real thing and we're excited about it.
1: Yeah. Oh, I definitely think they're a real thing. I feel, uh, so I work at a big digital agency mm-hmm. and there's, there's kind of this, uh, for, for the men, there's kind of this uniform, okay. which is like, uh, jeans and a sports coat. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like we're right at this tipping point, um, where you're, uh, it's possible to show up at a client meeting, <clears throat> excuse me, in an untucked shirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now it's, it's like, literally, that's my question. To my, um, like, account manager before I go visit a client.
0: Mm-hmm. Like,
1: it's tucked or untucked. Exactly. It's kind of the new...
0: Yeah, and it's it's been going on and it's been a good tailwind for us. Uh, when they started the brand, they actually didn't think that it would be a brand that would extend past, you know, the millennials, the cool guys in the yep. office. But what we find is with the casualization of America in general and the fact that bodies change. So our average age is actually 20 to 60, which was really surprising, uh, but Part of it is your body changes, and we design shirts for all bodies, which is something that the traditional apparel industry had not thought of.
1: Um, Awesome. Well, I'm glad here it's going well. Uh, I I want to dig into your business a little bit, but before we do... Uh, how did you come to Untucket?
0: Yeah, I, I, Untucket was actually a client. So I have a consultancy that focuses on digital transformation. And I've been working in the industry for 15 years. As Untucket and, and the great founders had their insights, they've built the business, but I haven't necessarily invested in technology. And they're now at a point and of a size and with VC backing that in an effort to make sure we become the billion dollar unicorn that we want to be, uh, we needed to invest in technology. So I started out in a consulting role and really loved the brand, loved the people, loved the culture and the inclusive mentality that they had. And at the start of the year, they asked me to be chief digital officer. So I accepted. Wow. Well,
1: that uh, – so that puts a whole new stress on the the advice you had to give them before you took the gig. Oh, absolutely. That you're like, wait a minute. If I take this job – like, I'm going to have to see that advice through, which <laughs> exactly. is the secret of the consulting industry is that we usually don't.
0: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and because I'm my background uh, is mostly in working with venture capital or private equity backed brands, uh, I'm always held to task. Uh, those relationships run long when you're working with the P or VC fund. So from time to time, I actually have to implement. I've got to eat my own words, so to speak. So if I make the recommendation, sometimes I have to actually come in and implement it. So this has been a perfect segue into untuck it
1: that that is terrific um so you were on a panel at e yesterday yes. and i feel like your panel title had a little bit of attitude to it <laughs> um so the first half seemed like super conventional mm-hmm. um uh omni-channel is table stakes but then you you throw in the what are you serving yeah yeah um uh so uh, there were a few retailers on the show a friend mm-hmm. of the show chris hard from uh now at clark's yeah um was one of the panelists. And uh, for our listeners that weren't lucky enough to get to attend the panel... Uh, can you sort of give us a high level about um, what your POV was on the panel?
0: Yeah, Omnichannel obviously is overused and it means different things to different brands, to different customers, but we really tried to break it down. Uh, Obviously at the heart of Omnichannel is a single view of customer and a single view of inventory. And if you're at a legacy retailer like a Clarks, as uh, some of our partners were, it's a lot harder than when you're at a digitally native brand like Untuckit and we're starting from scratch. So we were sharing... Some of the pitfalls and successes that we've had, but it all comes back to data. And uh, I don't think big data is overused and overplayed because it is real. And part of that is having the technologies that are cost effective to be able to draw insights from that data. And so we spent a lot of time talking about that. Everything from getting a CDP, a customer data platform, to building out the foundational elements of an ERP, an enterprise resource planning plan, so that you can get that 360 degree view of your customer. This is all hard stuff. I think we all agree that it's not easy. And there's very few who are actually getting it done appropriately.
1: For sure. And it's um, one of the interesting contrasts to me on your panel. So there was a lot of conversation about um, uh, data and that single view of the customer, um, you're a digitally native brand uh, that, as far as I know, exclusively sells direct, so both online and in stores, but you, but you own the customer in all cases. Um, and, of course, there are two more traditional brands, mm-hmm. uh, Clarks and uh, Movado,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, who are, like for the most part, disintermediated from that customer. Yeah, absolutely. So when they're thinking about uh, both what data they can collect and what data they can act on... Um, that data is much rarer and more precious for them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and I would argue it's it's inordinately hard to get it right, even in your shoes, where access to the data is probably not a primary problem. Um, and so then you you are in one of their shoes, and you really have to start getting clever about how you you uh, aggregate data on what you can do.
0: Absolutely. It's hard for all of us out here. It's not an easy effort to get Omnichannel, but at the end of the day, it's the customers who are demanding it. And whether it's hard or not, we have to do it.
1: For sure. Um, so let's unpack the Untuck it uh, experience a little bit. Uh, I'm assuming that when they first had this epiphany and they they uh, figured out how to um, make the this first product, um, did they do any kind of market validation or did they just go all in and say we're we're putting our our life savings on the line and we're going to open a website or how did that work?
0: (laughs) Well the great thing about having two founders is we had one founder who was definitely all in chips all in on a table and another founder who actually was a little more reserved and that's the brilliant balance that we have as a startup and uh, we started with one store and a website and both the founders worked in the stores and actually did those customer focus groups one on one working in the stores and understanding how the fit could be better. They, They also mind, all of the customer feedback that they got through the website. So if there were complaints or returns, they were the ones responding to it. So the traditional founder's story, but it ultimately, we took a while before we kind of hit the gas to say, let's do this. Let's open up what we have now, 75 stores across the U.S. We perfected it from 2015 to 2017 and then up and to the right. It's been a really exciting journey once we got the fit right and understood our customer base.
1: Uh, that's awesome, and I've already learned something. So I made a false assumption. Mm-hmm. So many digital native brands, of course, the easiest way to sell stuff uh, from a level of effort and cost standpoint is to launch that website. And mm-hmm. so most digital native brands start as a pure play e-commerce um, venture and ultimately like discover that there's a lot of benefit to opening stores as well. Um, but so, no, you guys open the store simultaneously of the website, uh, let's see, you're based in New York today. Was mm-hmm. that first store in Manhattan? Or? Yes,
0: it was in Soho. It's The store is still there on Prince Street.
1: Gotcha, which is a super uncompetitive retail section <laughs> for, for people that don't, both apparel retail and uh, Soho.
0: Yeah, and uh, we're also headquartered there, so that helped as well. So having the headquarters near the store and making sure there was a split between when we launched the website, which would have been in 2011, versus when we actually opened the store, which was in 2015 but ultimately getting that consumer feedback and that real touch point, i think they noticed rightfully so that having stores is the best thing that you can do as a digitally native brand so we we definitely understood that very early on
1: interesting and I want, i'm going to get back to that in just a sec but the um uh so assuming they didn't have a ton of experience in e-commerce or retail in addition to apparel um and you're nodding wisely um <laughs> podcast it's hard to see the nod, no so problem. i'm just teasing um so uh Did they, like, I'm trying to think, 2011, Shopify would not have been, like, a super well-known platform at Mm -hmm. that point. Like, did they... What, like, how did, like, did they hire someone to build a custom website? Did they, what, what, do you know what they did originally? Yeah,
0: fortunately, Shopify was in their sites. Oh, nice. And we are actually still on Shopify Plus. So, part of the, the beauty of it is our founders are very conscious of dollars. It was their hard earned money that went into the business early on because we waited some time before we took outside capital and they grew it very wisely, bootstrapping it. And Shopify was, and I, I believe, very strong. And that's a great platform to launch, especially now, a new brand.
1: Yeah. Well, I think in high like today it would be pretty easy for a brand to find shopify and it's super easy to launch a site. Um, my recollection from two thousand eleven they existed, but it it would not have been an obvious slam dunk. Um, there would have been a bunch of other choices with equivalent buzz that might not have been so successful for them so absolutely so they uh, so they made a good a good fit choice there um, launched that site, and so then uh, fast forward a couple of years, they open a store mm-hmm. um, adjacent to the corporate headquarters. And uh, if there's a bunch of mistakes you can make launching a website, <laughs> uh, <laughs> my premise is there's way more mistakes you mm-hmm. can make opening a store. Um, but the awesome thing about having even that first store is – you can you have to interact directly with the customer. And you're, to your point, like, they both worked in the store. So it's almost unavoidable that you get this customer feedback, this voice of the customer, and it creates this um, opportunity for a really good feedback loop that while there's tools to capture the voice of the customer online... It feels more disassociated. Absolutely. It feels more like data you get after the fact. It doesn't feel like a human being standing in front of you telling you their problem with the last shirt they bought or finding a shirt that fit or all those sorts of things. Um, So I suspect that that was a nice advantage uh, for them. Um, But now they're selling online to the whole country Mm -hmm. and they're selling uh, in-store out of one particular store. Um, uh, were they in that era, were they shipping from that? Like, did they have one inventory in New York and that's where all the, sh- the shipments went out? We
0: of? actually had a local DC, so it was very small in Connecticut. And we have built since then to have be at a, a major nationwide global 3PL with logistics. But at the early start, it was all bootstrapping. So a very small supplier who was helping us out and shipping. We didn't do it ourselves because our focus really was on perfecting the shirt.
1: Yep, and back then Shopify didn't have the omni-channel feature set and the POS, so you probably Nothing close
0: to that. Yes. Probably mm. had
1: to pick some other stuff and figure out what was important to integrate and. Um, and all those sorts of things. Uh, so uh, good news, that worked. Yeah. Um, it caught on and you've scaled how many stores did you say you have 75
0: now? stores right now.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so and all in the U.S., right?
0: All in the U.S. and Canada. Okay. And the exciting news is that we're opening two stores at the end of the year in London.
1: Oh, my gosh. Yes. Um, So that'll be your first international expansion. And will you launch a U.K. website?
0: We will. We will spin up a new U.K. website, and we're also spinning up a Canadian website to give the Canadians their own product. And we are moving inventory in-country, both Canada and the U.K. This is an exciting time for the brand.
1: It's global expansion. Um, uh, Exciting opportunities slash all sorts of new uh interesting challenges. Yes, <laughs>
0: yes. We love challenges. <laughs> uh yeah.
1: Well, it'd be boring if you just did easy stuff.
0: Exactly. Slam dunks all day long. <laughs> exactly.
1: Um yeah, I myself cannot dunk, but I've I've been told that it's yeah. It's kinda hard. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um that rim is way up there. I don't know if you know. But uh, <laughs> so uh with the fleet of stores mm-hmm. and e-commerce. Um, you know, you mentioned that single view of the inventory when you were talking about Omni channel, like that becomes more difficult to maintain, like. Do you have unified systems today and you have a single view of inventory across the hundred and twenty stores and your, your fulfillment centers? We
0: do. It's not fully mature and we're laying the bricks one by one to build on and bolt on to a core system. But right now in the US we do offer our customers an ability to order through Endless Isle and we have a mobile POS system with new store, which is definitely state of the art and revolutionary and next gen, all those yeah, things yeah. rolled into one. And it allows us to have the customers actually be able to provide feedback. And I'm building the connections as the CDO to make sure we get that view from both the call center to as well as the merchants. They want to have an ability to log in and see if there are customer complaints about our shirts, if there's a fit issue or a quality issue. So we're building that 360 degree view as well as giving technological enablers for that feedback loop.
1: Gotcha. And in your panel, you mentioned you do have a CDP in place. We
0: do. We do. And so for our marketing team, driving those insights of which customer segments work best for us, how can we incent them to come to our stores or to shop online, whichever they like and whatever we would like them to do. So leveraging AI and machine learning to be able to do that in a predictive manner, as well as driving insights about those customers and what they want from us, whether we also offer not just shirts, we have pants and shorts and other things as we complete the look and all in an effort to make our customers feel and look great. But to be able to do that, you definitely need technology.
1: Yeah. Um, so I want to pivot to customer acquisition. You alluded to it. Uh, but before I do one more question, like there's one more piece I feel like to your Um, your sales mix. So we've got the stores, we've got the e-commerce site. You are also a 3P seller on Amazon. Yes, we are. Um, And it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't bring up uh, the the Amazon. Uh, So I meet a lot of entrepreneurs that are on Amazon because they think it's a great customer acquisition uh, channel and they're happy to be there and they're investing in it. I meet other entrepreneurs that... I'll, I'll I'll characterize it as like it less but feel they have to be there. <laughs> so I'm like are, like where are you guys in the spectrum? Is it a uh...
0: I'd say we're probably in the middle. Uh, We're there, not in a major way. But we recognize that we want to have learnings from the channel in case we do decide. But as you noted early on, with so many other things on our radar right now, we are really focused on keeping control of our brand and the messaging. There's a lot of competition out there. And we want to make sure we protect our, our, our patent, so to speak, on the untucked shirt. And as we do that, going into new channels just presents, obviously, new barriers, new issues. Issues, new obstacles. So we're being very cautious as we roll out with Amazon.
1: Yeah, and you know, for our listeners, like it, uh, it potentially could feel oily or not, but the the reality is. Uh, There's a ton of shoppers on Amazon. They're going to type searches that are relevant to you Mm -hmm. in their search engine. Mm -hmm. If you're not there at all, there's going to be a bunch of squatters that are going to figure out how to show up on the top of those search results. And so very often brands will put a limited assortment on Amazon uh, just to win that search battle and not have their brand be usurped. Um, If you do have some IP protection, there's many more tools than Amazon has to protect your IP. Mm -hmm. If you're a seller... Um, And, of course, the path you've taken where you're selling yourself on Amazon as a 3 piece seller, Mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't say you get to control the experience as much as you'd like. But you, for example, get control over pricing, which is a very big deal. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, so not an uncommon strategy, (laughs) uh, but it doesn't sound like that was necessarily like your highest priority path to growth was you thought you'd. You'd shift from your own store- website to Amazon and the world would light on fire for you. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay, so let's pivot to that customer acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um... How are you finding new customers?
0: Well, how are we not finding new customers? I'd like to think that we we participate in everything. And I think that, again, goes back to the strength of our founding team and recognizing that with a brand that, in addition to men's, we also have women's. And a lot of times, women are also shopping for the men in their lives. Or maybe it's grandma buying a gift for her son. So we kind of needed to be everywhere to understand the extent of our, our reach and We're everywhere in print ads. I I enjoy coming to conferences like this where most people tell me they actually discovered us in the airline magazine, Ah. (laughs) which was very cost effective. But uh, the how have you heard of us has been very tremendous on that series of airline ads. We do social, paid social, billboards, television. Hopefully some of you have seen our, our spots. But we also think of our stores, actually, as a great way for us to have marketing Three sixty-five. So, part of where we want to go is understanding who we can appeal to, and then through all this great technology we're bringing in, we'll be able to segment them and speak to them in the way that they'd like to be on that one-to-one basis.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, The stores as an acquisition channel—I feel like it's kind of settled territory now. But for a long time, that Mm -hmm. was very controversial. It was, Um, and there's a ton of data that you open a store in a market, Mm -hmm. and your web traffic in that market dramatically picks up picks up and conversely if you're one of these retailers that's atrophying in mm-hmm. your closing stores mm-hmm. um, you take a big hit to brand awareness and e-commerce traffic and it's I'll be honest, like you walk into a retailer that's planning on closing stores, and almost always the strategy is we're going to capture those customers digitally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm always the one to see, like, not only are you not going to capture those customers digitally, you're going to lose other customers that discovered you because of your stores. A
0: hundred percent. You nailed it. And, and part of what we find now in this new omni-channel world, where we're really creating the rules, is you actually have to change your metrics. You can no longer simply look at sales online and sales in store because customers are shopping across channels. So you you could ultimately make bad decisions because your customer is now splitting their revenue. So we look at revenue on a market basis. And when we open a store to make sure we don't get to a point where we are cannibalizing our sales, we want to make sure we're growing within market for each of the customers who live there. And then, of course, customers travel. So having that technological stack that we can look and see, well, Jason actually flew to another city, Boston uh, maybe, and maybe stopped into Copley Place and purchased there. How is all of that impacting our brand overall?
1: Yeah, as someone that travels every week, I feel like I'm <laughs> high stress on the CDPs of a lot of the brands. Oh I, yes, yes. I, I use because um, I'm not. I'm almost certainly not the customer journey that's on their whiteboard. <laughs>
0: exactly.
1: Um, uh, but like that attribution thing is a mm-hmm. super challenging thing to do. Like, Very hard. Um, have you guys? adopted like a particular like approach to attribution and are you like you have a a notion of customer lifetime value and Mm -hmm. any?
0: Definitely notion of of customer lifetime value and thinking about it and cutting the data in many different ways to drive those insights. You know, attribution, we're working on some models internally with with external partners, but as well as looking at internally, how can we measure it? Obviously, last click is not ideal. And ultimately, we want to be able to double down on those things that are working, but it has to be an integrated view. And there are some really exciting partners out there. Some of them are here at this conference who are starting to think about the world in a real-life scenario with all these integrated points versus how the world used to be, which was very siloed. So we're still working on it. It's exciting to be in the in the game and trying to figure it out for the Untuck it brand.
1: Yeah, I think in your panel, you you alluded to one of the marketing scapes, and it's like the number of vendors is just... Um, exploding. Absolutely. Um, and I feel like one of these areas is attribution. Yes. Uh, so, on the good news, like there's a lot of smart people out there thinking about the problem. And the bad news, it can take a fair amount of bandwidth to talk to these guys and f- uh, figure out what's going to be the best fit for you. Are you sort of in the exploratory phases or have you found some vendors you really like that that have already yielded some results for you?
0: Yeah, and again, coming to conferences like this is amazing because you get to drop in really quickly and understand from a cultural fit perspective as well as from the tech perspective, who's where and are we aligned in how we think? And so we're still in the exploratory phases. We do have a short list of vendors that we're talking to, but if someone else drops out with, and it just takes one product release, right? (laughs) For a new feature to, to come out, and to really help solve some of the challenges that we have, given that we do have stores, we do have an online presence and we do send catalogs. So that's a very difficult model for some people to understand and ingest, but I'm at least building the foundation. So from a data perspective, we can unify it, it's cleansed, it's normalized, and then it can feed whatever algorithms they're, they're developing in a pretty rapid real time fashion. But it's again, really hard work to be able to get there. And most vendors are not there yet.
1: For sure. Um, so you're, you are collecting a bunch of this data, you've got the CDP, you have a broad range of, of customer acquisition tools. Um, are you at the point where you're activating any of that customer data to sort of personalize the those outbound marketing activities? Um, are, are you using it primarily to target who gets what activities, or are you using it to actually change the the content and those activations.
0: We're at the start of changing the content because that obviously requires some partners who can en- enable that dynamic rendering that would be necessary. So we're not there yet, but it's definitely on our horizons. And so part of what we're doing now is just understanding from lookalike audiences perspective. We have the CDP. We're able to look at our most active customers, our highest lifetime value customers, and then understand how we double down on them by leveraging the lookalike audiences on all of the social platforms. And we've seen Tremendous return on investment in a very short time. And I, I believe in that wholeheartedly. Having started out on Wall Street in my career, I want to make sure if I'm bringing on a new vendor that they're going to prove out from a revenue increase or from a cost reduction perspective in a very short amount of time. And so that's the selection criteria that I use in bringing it in. But we're, it's starting. Yeah, we can definitely see the momentum.
1: Yeah. Um, so I want to pivot to a uh, what can sometimes be a difficult conversation. So the you guys uh, you alluded to having raised some money, mm-hmm. um, I think last year, right? Or wait, last year maybe? Or two years ago. Two years ago. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and your aspiration to achieve that unicorn status, mm-hmm. that that billion dollar valuation. Um, uh, lots of exciting things about being in that phase of growth. Uh, but you're now in the situation that, like, if you can't achieve that kind of growth, it's not a success for the investors, mm-hmm. right? So you, uh, you've kind of taken off the table the option to be a successful medium-sized company. Um, <laughs> the, and, and so, like, when you're in this uh, situation where you have to keep scaling, one of the things that's really interesting is we see lots of, of these digital native brands hit what I call the, the D to C plateau. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's my premise, and you tell me of, uh, if you guys have already passed it, or you think my premise is wrong, or uh, if you have a, a, a hypothesis. But essentially... Go pre-digital, go 2007. If you had some new idea for a product and you launched it, um, it could be a great product that there were millions of people that wanted to buy, Mm -hmm. and it would take you five years to get the word out to those millions of people. So your growth would be very slow and steady, right? Even if it was a again a phenomenal product that had a big TAM that was desperate for your product, just the vehicles available to you to market that product. Were limited. You weren't going to be able to afford broadcast television at first, and so <laughs> you have this nice linear scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, you've got this fabulous idea to revolutionize the shirt industry, mm-hmm. um, and you have these wonderful digital tools to reach that that core audience immediately. And so, the growth that would have taken you five years, you now potentially get in six months or a year. And so, there, it looks the first year of your business as in the digital era looks vastly better than the first year of businesses in the pre-digital era looks. Mm -hmm. Um, But the mistake is a bunch of companies go, oh, my God, we're going to keep scaling like this forever until we hit that billion dollars, and then we're going to go sell it and live on a boat in Nantucket. (laughs) Um, And the reality is there was some addressable market that really wanted your product, and you just find those guys earlier. And so to keep growing, the next you have to pivot and now find... These customers that maybe you have to evangelize more or you have to educate more or, you know, that are just less likely to be your customers than that that first tranche of growth was. And so we see a lot of DTCs with this nice hockey stick, and then it flattens out, and they've got to figure out... that. And flatten doesn't mean they're doomed. It means what got them there is not the same tactics they're going to have to use to that next phase of growth. So they have to dramatically change their customer acquisition. Are you guys seeing that phenomenon at all? Do you feel like that's already in the rearview mirror and you're blowing past it? Am I high? And you
0: <laughs> no, not at all. I think it's a brilliant insight. Having worked at a startup for six years, having worked at a dot com in uh, the early 2000s, I completely agree with your assessment. And that's why I'm super excited to be with Untuck It now, because the cost of being able to scale has come down dramatically. And the tools that are out there, exactly as you stated, fortunately, we haven't hit plateau. And I I think it's the incredible insights of our team that's very strong and grounded. Many of us have worked in the dot-com era, and we took those lessons that we got from there and have now applied them to this business, but got in while we're still growing and now building the infrastructure so that we can leverage and start to think. And the great thing is we're experimenting and iterating all along. So I think part of the reason why we haven't found that plateau point yet is because we are out there doing things very smartly, staying very Very close to our customers, making sure our stores, which are profitable within the first six to eight months, which is pretty incredible. Absolutely. So, as we double down on that and get smarter about how we measure different markets, measure the different segments, again, women shop very differently than men. So, we're in understanding the female purchase behaviors, which may vary and do vary from how men are purchasing from us and the messages that we put in front of them. So by doing all of that at the same time, we're ensuring that we maintain, if not accelerate our growth rates, even as we grow.
1: Uh, that makes total sense. Um, you, uh, One of the things I'm curious about, because you have this level of customer intimacy, you know your customers super well, you're collecting all this data, one of the traditional problems in the apparel space in particular is returns um and like you don't you can't sell apparel without having meaningful returns unfortunately which is just you know an extra expense to doing business um but i do have a hypothesis that uh if you know the customer well uh there's more you have more levers to pull to mitigate returns and i'm i'm curious do you feel like your data is like is a competitive advantage to help you manage returns and keep those costs manageable, or do you see that as an opportunity?
0: Yeah, we have done a lot of work, and that was part of the early years that Chris and Aaron spent, and perfecting the shirt is an understanding from a sizing perspective what works for men, and as part of that, I think in our stores, the brilliant insight was to have the try-on shirt in store, so once a guy comes in and he locks into his size, it's golden. He may never come into a store again, but may own 30-some-odd shirts because he knows what he likes and he can simply go online after he had that first experience and yeah maybe he got a glass of bourbon while he was in there too but he enjoys the brand and how easy we made it for him and yes we still even with that have three return partners that are helping us because we're experimenting and we recognize that Customers are going to exchange. They're going to return product. That's the nature of our business. So we try to make it as seamless as possible. And then if we get a return to work with 3PLs that can clean the product, put it back on the shelves as quickly as possible, or get it back out to customers through online. So we recognize that it's the dirty side, the secret side of of retail, but there are tools out there to help you make it a little easier for you to manage.
1: Yeah. And uh, you alluded to those partners. Is that similar to the... The happy returns of the world.
0: Happy returns, Narvar... Uh, As well as Returnly, all of whom are here this week and they're doing great jobs in different ways. And ultimately, I think as that competitive set shrinks, we'll understand ultimately how our customers like to behave with us. And as we have more stores, we'll take a look at it because what ends up happening is some customers will like to bring it into the store. Again, we need an opportunity to streamline that process and get it back on the floor for sales associates to be able to sell.
1: Yeah, no, uh, I think that's super smart. I, I, and I, I really like the – I feel like those vendors have hit a pro, upon a real problem statement that there's real economic incentive to solve. So, Exactly. Uh, so that's exciting. I, I did – I wrote an article I think last week mm. uh, talking about like the challenges of e-commerce profitability and, and specifically around returns. And I found this old quote I had forgotten about from Andy Dunn when he first started Bonobos. Mm-hmm. And it was like uh, – uh, e-commerce is awesome as long as you don't care about EBITDA, <laughs> <laughs> which I feel like uh, isn't isn't always true, but it's a important cautionary tale. Like It turns out it's not just throw this stuff online and you're guaranteed a profit.
0: Exactly. Well, fortunately, we are chasing profits, so that's definitely exactly, yeah, sound, something it, that's on our
1: horizon. It sounds like it. um So I want to pivot to the future, but uh, before I do, I, I wanted to close the loop on one thing on stores because it just makes me super happy. Uh, untuck it. Is finally opening a store in Nantucket. <laughs> so I feel like that's very melodious.
0: There you go. And yeah. we want to do that for yeah. sure.
1: I know. I know that that was a high priority in here.
0: Absolutely. Your,
1: um, uh, although you have to be careful. I don't know if you follow the Nantucket news lately, but they're shark infested.
0: Well, yeah. Look at that. Sharks in the water. We'll put some on the shirt. You know, just go with it. Might as well go with it. Yeah.
1: I, I feel I just embrace it. Like exactly. if, you wanna, if you do a local shirt, it would be the shark warning. There you go. Shirt. Yeah. Um, so, uh, like, it, I feel like we're in a super fascinating time. Like, the t- best tactics that worked when you guys launched are probably not the exact same best tactics we're uh, we're using today. There's a lot of trial and, and learning. You've referenced a lot of the different vendors and tactics that are available at shows like this. Um, if you try to put your futurist hat on, and imagine coming back to this show in 2025, um, how do you think... The industry is going to have evolved. Like, wh- which of these problems do you feel like maybe we've solved, and what do you think the new <laughs> the new <laughs> problems are? Do you do you have any POV about um, where like? Uh, untuck it would be in five years?
0: Yeah, well, again, putting on the futurist head, you never know. No one has a crystal ball. I, I actually feel like there were many things we learned in .com 1.0 and that we forgot somehow and now we're here talking about them again. But hopefully if we continue to double down on the lessons we get, I think in advance on some of the benefits we give, it's about the fit of the product. And right now there's so much excess inventory out there for whatever reason that's not selling. I'm excited about a few future where we can leverage technology and data to be able to get there. And obviously Stitch Fix, Rent the Runway, they're all looking at the different components and attributes of products to understand how do you get the product that this customer will like based on their preference, as well as getting the manufacturing tolerances of these products down to a point where you are actually getting what feels like a custom fit, but is actually off the shelf. Like, I think that's where we're going to go if we continue this trend of leveraging technology to get better, which equals less waste in the world, which I love, right? (laughs) No more landfills of clothes because we're producing only what will get sold. So I'm super excited about that future.
1: Yeah, well, uh, when you put it in terms of saving the earth, now I totally jump on board on your vision of the future as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, Lockie, that's going to be a great place to end it for today because it's happened again. We've used up all our allotted time. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if folks are uh, eager to keep the conversation going, you're welcome to jump on our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter. Um, As always, if you enjoyed the show, we'd love that five-star review on iTunes. Uh, But more importantly, Lockie, if uh, folks want to find you online, like, is uh, do you hang out in some digital corner of the universe? You on, uh, to
0: Twitter and Instagram at LockheedAndrews.com. Uh, you can find me anywhere. I speak a lot at conferences, but please reach out to me and thank you again.
1: Awesome. I will uh, put those links in the show notes. Uh, thanks again for all your time and really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you. Until next time. Happy commercing.